0: Are you looking to improve employee engagement and retention? Do you struggle with decisions on who to hire or who to promote? I have an amazing opportunity for a forward-thinking, purpose-led, people-first organisation to work with me on the first pilot Happier at Work programme for corporates. The programme is entirely science-backed and you will have tangible outcomes in relation to employee engagement, retention, performance and productivity. The programme is aimed at people leaders with responsibility for hiring and promotion decisions. If this sounds like you, please get in touch at Aoife at happieratwork.ie. That's A O I F E at happieratwork.ie. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for leaders who put people first. The podcast covers four broad themes, engagement and belonging, performance and productivity, leadership equity, and the future of work. Everything to do with the Happier at Work podcast relates to employee retention. You can find out more at at happieratwork.com.
1: That's, for me, the critical lesson of this. We're entering an era where work might be a smaller part of our identity than it has been till now. But we're also entering into an era where, left unchecked, we could be lonelier and more disconnected than ever before.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Happier at Work podcast. I am delighted to have my guest today, Bruce Daisley from the Eat Sleep Work Repeat podcast. I've been a fan of Bruce's for a couple of years when I started listening to his podcast. We met in person at an event in Dublin back in June before I went to Tenerife. So it was an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to turn the tables on him, let's say, and ask him a few questions uh, for the podcast. We talk about things like team dynamics and resilience. I know you're really, really going to enjoy this chat. And being a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you really, really enjoy his podcast as well. The name again is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat and find it wherever you get your podcasts. As always, I will do a wrap up at the end. I'm going to summarise some of the key points that we discussed during the podcast episode and if you want to get involved in the conversation, I would very much welcome that. Do feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. All of the links are in the show notes, but you can look for me, Efa O'Brien, B R I E N, or through my website, happieratwork.ie, and also on Instagram, happieratwork.ie. Welcome, Bruce, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as my guest today. Do you want to give people a little bit of a flavour of who you are, what you're about, and a little bit of an introduction?
1: Yeah, hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. I used to work at technology companies like uh, Google and Twitter. I worked for a long time at at those firms. And during that time, I think I, I just became obsessed with workplace culture. I became obsessed with when the dynamics of teams helped them feel better than other teams. And uh, that was largely informed by the fact that... Um, that uh some teams i worked with you know could sit side by side with other teams and yet their their working dynamic seemed fundamentally different and uh and so i i i left twitter and i decided i'd i'd started doing a podcast about workplace culture at a time when i felt like i needed some direction myself while i was still in the job um and the podcast and the the books that come from it have become the focus of my work really. I, you know, I do a newsletter which goes to about 15,000 people across the UK and Ireland. And uh, it's just a sort of uh, a constant focus, thinking about what the future of work looks like, really.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. For anyone who doesn't listen, I highly recommend going checking it out. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you'll definitely be a fan of Bruce's podcast as well. Eat, sleep, work, repeat. Eat, sleep, work, repeat. Um, I just love the name. I absolutely love the name. And you had a, re- a book come out recently called Fortitude, which I've started reading. I haven't finished it yet, but um, we met in person at an event back in June, I think it was, in Dublin. Had a great chat about all things podcasting. You were telling me all about this upcoming book, Fortitude, and how it's a slightly different approach to resilience because we often talk about resilience at work and how people need to just be more resilient. And I love the approach of the book that it's it kind of takes a slightly different slant around that. Do you want to give people a kind of some some of the insights maybe that that you learned that you weren't aware of? prior to the book or some of the, the key points from
1: it yeah but well, the first instance is the fact that there's so much resilience talk around you know we uh, you it's it's hard to work in a modern day workplace and not hear talk about the team needs to be more resilient or should we get a resilience course or should we should we try and find a way for for people to be more resilient and actually it's something that permeates schools as well skull School, schools are full of resilience talk we need to teach it's had to be more resilient. We need to teach them growth mindset. We need to teach them how to be more gritty. And I guess I was interested in that phenomenon. I was interested in that that idea that we we're seeing all this talk around. And simultaneously I guess the, the reason why we're seeing so much of that talk is that in parallel there's a feeling that people are less resilient. And so why on earth would that be the case and and uh, so that's it's so the book is an in- investigation into those things really trying to understand what on earth is resilience why we're we hearing so much talk of it and what's the real origin of it and mm-hmm. you know in places it's a detective story it's trying to understand that resilience course that you got sent on at work who wrote it and how dare they you know how dare someone tell <laughs> you that they can uh, create resilience and you know what was the foundation for it and you know the this a really interesting answer to that. Broadly, majority of the the work in those training courses comes from what I style the resilience orthodoxy, which is the work of two or three psychologists, American psychologists, and that's a that's a clue because they come from a very individualistic school of psychology, and so that was a fascination. Okay, and yeah, uh, yeah. and the next thing really was just trying to understand. Well, you know. I think it's pretty clear to us that resilience does exist, and we see it in people in Ukraine. We see it in people surviving the Pakistani floods right now. We see uh, around us all of the time. You know, it seems to produce this inner strength uh, in in a really low time. So, I wanted to reconcile those things that you know we often see an absence of of resilience when we look for it in an individualised world, and yet when we see people who are finding themselves in the throes of collectivism, they seem to exhibit an abundance of it. And the the book is really an exploration of that, where broadly the spoiler is that resilience is the strength we draw from each other um and i think the the moment you recognize that Mm. and you know the the moment you say okay absolutely all of those episodes where people have exhibited resilience they are emboldened by the community the group that they feel part of as soon as you recognize it you go oh wow you know why why on earth do we not get taught that simple lesson uh before and so the, the book's you know, an obsession, uh, an exploration, it's part sort of detective story to try to track down those things, really.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's really important that insight, that, that first of all, the fact that we're asking, are people less resilient? I think there is a lot of talk about resilience. And interestingly, exactly like you said, Bruce, oh, let's send people on a resilience course rather than the perception that we've created an environment in which, which people feel like they're struggling, like they're over like they're burning out. The the kind of the onus is put on the individual then to be more resilient as opposed to the organisation to cause less stress or cause you know reduce the workload or um, change the focus or something like that. Any any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I had someone come to to fix my Wi-Fi actually, and um, and he said to me, he said in passing actually, he said never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down and uh resilience is a little bit like that you know resilience never in the history of resilience someone being more resilient by being told by being sent on a webinar of how to be more resilient you know and the problem is is that because we peddle this individualized, individualized resilience when people get sent on a course you know, and and let's look into what those courses often contain. You know, the the leading psychologist, his resilience course encourages you to hunt the good stuff in your life. You know, it's it's a strange perspective. You know, you, you might have significant family problems. You might have money worries. You might be entering the cost of living crisis. And someone says to you, you know, the problem with you, you're not looking for the good stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's the empathy I was looking for right now. Um And so, you know, it's it's a really <laughs> yeah, interesting yeah. uh perspective, sort of looking into these things, because, um, you know, I think to a large extent there's a, a degree of misdirection. Like I say, the this leading psychologist, the psychologist who forms <coughs> the foundational work for most of this resilience training is a really esteemed psychologist called Martin Seligman but you know if you hear him talk he's avowedly an old an old school a sort of traditional uh republican and he you know strongly believes that individuals need to take responsibility for the outcomes of their lives and uh, you know I get it m- maybe to some extent we we do need to have some degree of ownership of what's going on in our lives. But I think, you know, to say that that resolutely is a blank sheet of paper that we all start from the same position is a degree unempathetic. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's been the Mm. the book's been a labour of love the last two years. And, you know, um, and in fact, you know, on my own podcast this week, I've, I've included me talking to a, a sort of a brilliant academic, uh, a brilliant advertising man, Rory Sutherland, who, you know, he's he's well regarded. And talking about the themes of the book, so I think you know. Uh, firstly, it's been fascinating discussion uh, that's come from it, and exactly I've been thrilled with how the book's done. It's been a top five bestseller over in the UK. I know it's I know it's sold really well in Ireland as well. I've been over for a couple of events in Ireland, so um, yeah. delighted with the success of it
0: brilliant no it's really great and I love this whole approach uh, approach that it's about community and and there is a lot of talk of personal responsibility and I am a big believer in taking personal responsibility but when it's when we're talking about things like resilience maybe then that's that comes into the the kind of general conclusion of the book being it's about collectivism as opposed to individualism and it's not about just focusing on yourself it's about and, you know, does that mean then that we're, in order to be more resilient, that we're helping other people, that we're kind of forming part of a group and we're, in order to be helped ourselves, we're offering help to other people?
1: Yeah, it's, it's more necessarily, not necessarily helping other people, but it's recognising that the um, a, a sense of collective strength is is what protects us. So, you know, there's, uh, there's an American mm. sociologist, really, a guy called Robert Putnam, who wrote a book that became a really huge success around the millennium in the US called Bowling Alone and he just talked about the the phenomenon of how US society was becoming more individualised and less collectivist you know people were still bowling as much mm. as they bowled before yeah. but they weren't part of bowling leagues they weren't part of bowling clubs and he was just interested in that phenomenon And his conclusion was that if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, but you're not a part of any group, I would advise you to join a group before you consider giving up cigarettes. He said, you know, uh, effectively, the uh, groups protect us. Now, as soon as you start identifying this, and, you know, I found the whole realm of psychology around this is something called um, social identity. And what you find is that, you know, if the work peddling that old school individualized version of resilience is pretty flaky. The research about social identity is dazzlingly strong um, to the extent that, you know, you can look at people who maybe have major heart operations or go to hospital with an episode of depression. And the biggest predictor of how well they will be in three or five years time is how many groups they report being part of. Wow, that's astonishing. And if you see the graphs of it, Mm -hmm. it is dazzling. I'll give you another another example. uh, The world's leading expert on teenage mental health is a woman called Jean Twenge. And look, she's pretty, um, I think, critical of the state of of teenage mental health. You know, she she speaks about uh, the, the challenges that teenagers face in the modern era. But one of the things she observed in the course of the pandemic, and this was right at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, we've got to sort of delete from memory some of our... The, the, the burns, the scars from the pandemic, you know, most of us, I think, would say that the pandemic has been a mental health disaster. But she studied the period right at the start of the pandemic. So yeah. maybe before anything came to pass afterwards. And she said, teenagers who reported having a family meal each evening, they were sitting down with their, their mums, their dads, their families, who, whatever their family looks like. They were having a family meal each evening. Their resilience went up and their depression went down. Resilience is the strength we draw from other people. And the more that we're reminded to the connections of other people, mm-hmm. uh, the, the more we're able to, to tap into it. Now, you know, for a podcast like this, actually that's got a really direct relevance. You know, the biggest predictor, of people being engaged with their Mm. jobs the biggest predictor of people being happy at work from the workforce server that someone has a best friend at work and so you know if anyone listening to this is thinking okay so you know uh, how do I achieve my own happiness at work how do I elicit happiness in others then you know As much as it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that would ever trouble an MBA course or uh, find itself on a business uh, degree, actually having a best friend at work is the biggest predictor. It's the biggest thing you can do to motivate your team. And, you know, actually, if you look into that Gallup Workforce Survey, they published the latest version a couple of months ago. The the latest version of the Gallup Workforce Survey says that the people who work a hybrid uh, job and, you know, increasingly that is all of us who do knowledge work. So it's half of the workforce. And uh, only 17% of them in a global study, only 17% of them having report having a best friend at work. So what does that mean? Well, look, you know, firstly, if resilience is the strength we draw from each other, if having a best friend at work is the biggest predictor of us feeling happy at work, then, you know, one of the things that we might say, we might set ourselves the challenge is, how can we create a, an environment where people here are best friends or people here feel like they've got someone they can go and gossip with go and cry on the shoulder of go and moan a, about you know their workload how can we make sure that people have got those degrees of connection even when they are working in a hybrid environment and i think you know that's for me the critical lesson of this we're, we're entering an era which i think holistically, societally, is better, where work might be a smaller part of our identity than it has been till now. But we're also entering into an era where, left unchecked, we could be lonelier and more disconnected than ever before.
0: There's so many things that I want to dig in as part of what you've just said. Um, we, when In my last corporate role, I was one of the representatives helping to interpret the the Gallup survey and one of you know the the big questions that people had a problem with was this idea of a best friend at work. I think it's it's a bit more American than probably what we're used to in Europe. Um, I don't know do we call people our best friends at work might be a work wife or a work husband or a you know or or something like that. But you don't necessarily say that it's your, your best friend. I think people think associate best friends as being outside of work. Um, I love this idea that um or not that, that I love this idea, but I love the insight that work is becoming a smaller part of our identity. And on, on previous podcasts and in various discussions I've had with people, uh, we've been talking about what, what work means, you know, and and Previously, we had a greater sense of community, maybe from the church in Ireland where people go to mass on a regular basis, a bit more involved in community events. And work to a degree has replaced that. So you go to work and that's where you find your sense of community, your sense of connection with other people. And that's sort of taken over. And I think to your point earlier, Bruce, about the pandemic and people working in this hybrid environment, we've maybe lost that sense of connection we've lost that sense of of having a best friend at work or having someone to to kind of talk to in building on that point totally agree with this idea of like just having someone to talk to and to moan to and to have a bit of a gossip with i think it's really great but interestingly from i want to share a couple of personal examples from me where i had a couple of, of people at work who i used to go to lunch with on a regular basis and complain and all i did was complain 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 about what was happening at work. And and through one thing and another, one person was on the contract and she left and the other person got a new job and she left. And I wasn't going for lunch and talking and, and moaning about work on a regular basis. And I started to enjoy my work a lot more because I wasn't moaning about it so much. Interesting. So that's point number one. Point number two, there was a time where I did feel like I had a best friend at work and then I was promoted into a position and in that organisation it was very much an us and them and so when I was promoted I felt very isolated from the, 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 you know, I felt I'm part of this leadership team now and I don't feel like I'm part of the kind of the, the group that I had been previously. So any insights or any thoughts on, on those kind of personal examples?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, um, uh look the, the the challenge of sort of finding yourself having a confidant and moaning uh, um look you know they, they were they were they were <laughs> felt they were felt feelings you know i am not sure whether um repressing mm-hmm. them m- makes you happier but um yeah you, you know there 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 is some interesting evidence about when people um work in an environment with a bad apple these research that was done that that took okay, an environment yeah. and they and they brought along someone to different team dynamics. They brought someone who was going to be negative. They was going to be, brought, brought someone who was going to be a moaner. They brought someone who slouched and lay with their head on the table saying this is boring. And what they discovered was that the overall performance of the team dropped by up to 50% by the presence of someone who was like this. Wow. Uh, this mood killer, the vibe killer. And so, you know, having negativity around most definitely plays a part. I've never heard someone um, feeling bad about their own negativities. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you know, these things most definitely do play a part on our experience. Remind Mm. me the second part of the question.
0: Uh, The second one was being promoted then. And so there was very much a culture of us and them. It wasn't really a collective culture. So being promoted... And then, feeling quite isolated from someone who had formerly been what I would have considered my best friend at work,
1: yeah. I mean, no doubt, you know, like the the old truism that it's tough at the top, and it's it's also relatively tough in the middle uh, <laughs> that you know, not having someone that you can confide in. I think it's the biggest challenge that that bosses and leaders have. They'd have no one that they can go and moan to that can go yeah. and unburden themselves to. Um, and that sense of isolation yeah. is why, you know, so many senior leaders find themselves joining. Networking clubs of of like minds because they just want someone that they can admit that they don't know what they're doing all the time and they you know admit you know that they're frustrated yeah. with the way that works playing out so um, most definitely I think that's a an observable phenomenon um, not just in yourself but you know <laughs> yeah. across the the whole environment really
0: yeah everyone has that it's so interesting um, <laughs> I'd love to know um, a little bit more then at the start when you were kind of talking about. Uh, when you're introducing yourself you talked about this idea of team dynamics and I'm really curious as to how we can bring in this concept of resilience and working as part of a community as part of a collective rather than an individualistic work approach how what what are your thoughts around team dynamics and how to apply what you learned from the book into that that kind of team dynamics and how that plays out in in the workplace
1: yeah um Look, you know, I, I became fixated with it. And, and I think over the course of the last few years, there's definitely been more attention that's gone into components like psychological safety and understanding that. And what really struck me over the course of the um, the last couple of years, really, was that I spend a lot of time, <clears throat> anytime there's a new workplace culture book that comes out, sort of I must spend a time sort of reading it and trying to interpret it. And there was one thing that struck me, in the course of the last two, twelve months, where I've um, I've observed a, a discrepancy between the U.S. philosophy and workplace culture, and probably a more a more global perspective outside the U.S. So, if you read a lot of the books and the, uh, you see a lot of the conversation about team culture, and this is important because Silicon Valley has had such a global impact in the last uh, twenty or thirty years. But books about culture in America broadly are consistent with things that, you know, people like Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix says, he said, culture is what you choose to reward and what you choose to punish. Or uh, Ben Horowitz, who wrote a really fabulous book called, uh, what you do is who you are. And, um, and he talked about culture is, you know, the incentives and the penalties inside an organization. It's the pattern of behaviors that you hope that most people will observe most of the time. No. Absolutely all of these things. And I've found myself as a consequence of that, watching the interpretation of these things. I've, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, I've I've consulted with sort of a whole load of of different companies. And what you find is that US firms generally interpret that as the culture is the roadmap. It's the highway code. It's the rules of engagement. But there's something fundamental missing about that. Culture is the the bit about having a best friend at work. Culture is the sense of connection and affiliation. Culture is the sense of team cohesion. For me, culture is the sense that we're all in it together. And it's quite often missed from those interpretations. So, you know, for me, there's this something that is far more emotional, that's a, a visceral connection between people that, okay, I feel like we're all on the same side. And look, you know, I'm not saying... Um, American commentators can't observe this because one of the one of the best academics passed away this year, but she was a truly brilliant academic who studied this, was a woman called Sigal Barside. And she would, she talked about companionate love. She talked about when she studied firefighters or cricket players or um or people working in an office environment. The thing that often characterized the best performance was that they had a fondness of each other that was you know, she said a a, a sort of platonic, but a a companionate love, a sort of an affection for each other that meant that they all pulled in the same direction. Now, look, you know, this is really instrumental for me. I think one of the biggest challenges of organizational culture and, and thinking about team dynamics is this obsession with the red herring of purpose. For me, you know, the notion that you're... You might be working somewhere, and that you've got this purpose that we want to create. You work in a sandwich bar; we want to create the best sandwiches in the. It, if you've worked in bars, restaurants, you know quite often they're not trying to create the best. There's no aspiration. They're they're firmly in the middle. They're they you know their price point they're op- operating is that it's a convenience. You know we're not trying to do the best of anything. Mm. However, if you think about it from an identity perspective, then you say you know a lot of the people here are thinking. Okay, we've got a great dynamic here. You know, if you've worked in bars and restaurants you witness this really visibly, but you know, I've worked in retail as well. You see people and they're like, okay, we're not claiming we're the best. We're not like the the big I am, but we've got a really good team dynamic here. If someone's off sick, we all pull for each other. If someone's if someone so it comes and says, Oh my catch has been run over, then we'll all be like, You, you go home, we'll cover for you it's a that's an identity that's not about purpose that's about identity and, and unfortunately we've misappropriated it and as soon as you recognize that it's an identity thing it's about like the pride of the work we do we're a part of something and we we feel of an affinity with each other. I think it makes a lot more sense for me
0: yeah there's a there's a few things i would love to pick up on um really interesting insights, and i i hadn't re- i knew that the culture in the U.S. is different to the culture, say, in, in a lot of other places that, that I've worked. But it's an interesting insight that the U.S. is kind of more about the rules. And here's the rules that you need to follow. And it's your personal responsibility, maybe going back to our earlier point, it's your personal responsibility to follow these rules in order to create this great culture. And then from a rest of the world slash Europe, um, it's more about that connection and affiliation. But to your point about Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley and the companies coming out of the U.S. have really grown globally, does that then have an impact on the cultures in other parts? Is there maybe a slight jarring if someone joins, say, a U.S. company and they previously had had worked for a different company? Is there a different style or is there, you know, or is that kind of reinterpreted? um within i'd love so first of all i'd love to get your thoughts on that i have some other kind of questions i'd love to follow up on as well
1: yeah most definitely i think these things have a a really big bearing because you know if you if you don't have a consideration for all we're all in it together then what what ends up happening is what's happened to a lot of us what's happened about work to a lot of people over the course of the last um year or so is that our connection with work has changed and work is no longer something that lives in our life and has a relationship with us like school, you know, like really tightly in there. You know, if you missed a day at school, you felt like you would never catch up with the gossip. Um, you felt like you'd never sort of, you, your connection to the group was loosened because you <laughs> were sort of, you were, uh, you hadn't been there yesterday. You almost felt apologetic because you were sort of trying to find your way back into the um, the, the shared experience. Um, you know that that was the experience in school. Well, it was a little bit like that. You know, the people next to you gossip with. You might be on a a tea round with people where you'd make teas, or you know, someone would bring um, sort of you know some form of of carbohydrate based snack back, and you'd sort of you know you'd, the delight of sharing a packet of biscuits was was immense. You know, those things are really cohesive. And we've we've moved from that relationship to something closer to our experience of university. University, where the people on your course you often had a loose connection with. You might occasionally have socialised with maybe where you lived, or you know someone's um, sports mate, or you know a, a broader collection of people. Yeah, and and or clubs, clubs and societies and uh, things that people joined as well. That's right. So so at college, your course was less a part of your identity. You often didn't know what courses your friends were on at college, at university. Um, your course was less of an identity. That's what we've moved to with work. What are the consequences that? The consequences are that organisations saw an increase in their resignation rate as soon as uh, about 12 months ago, and it's not gone back down. And everyone thought that that was sort of something mm-hmm. going through the system. No, no, no. It was because we've become a little more sem- semi-detached from our jobs, and you know we've we've started perceiving that work is an important part of what we do, but it's not the defining part that sits at the at the centre of what we do. Now, look, you know that might change, but I think it poses really critical questions for anyone in this space, because it sort of begs the question of us, um, how can you create good cohesive environments where you're not together every day? And I think the answer to that is you need to try to do things differently. You know, to try to presume that that team cohesion will come from, um, you know, a casual bit of chitter-chatter during the course of the week, it's not going to come in that same way. You need to think about creating it in a far more explicit way, I think.
0: thoughts then? So it's really interesting what you're saying about work is, is not really a defining part of what we do anymore. And I can see that to an extent, but equally what my interpretation, I suppose, of, of the Great Resignation, whatever you want to call it, we haven't really seen that much of it here in Ireland yet. Um, But my interpretation was people are looking for a greater sense of meaning in what they do, a greater sense of impact and maybe a greater sense of belonging in whatever organisation they choose to work in. And during the pandemic, they realised, they came to this realisation that what they were doing was not really what they wanted to do. It's not really how they wanted to be spending their time. And so they're looking for something more from work because it has such a, because we spend, I mean, from my perspective, we spend so much time at work. So you want to make it something that you really enjoy. Um, I understand that it's becoming less relevant, but if it is that kind of so how much time we're spending at work and to make it have that greater sense of of meaning and have you know to to go back to that idea of the purpose, that how can you how can you create more of that? That was my interpretation of of the great resignation. But I can also see the perspective that it work is playing less of a role, and it's more about community in wherever we live. Family and the friends that we already have outside of that work context.
1: Yeah, well, look, you know, I, I was at an event in Dublin about three weeks ago where people were talking about the and a selection of businesses, and they were talking about all of them carrying oh, a wow. resignation okay. rate that was in the twenties, twenty percent plus. So, you know, uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty convinced that it's happening. Um, it is okay. A pretty widespread phenomenon. The only reason I would push, yeah. It, the only reason I would push back on the idea that this is a pursuit of meaning um is because broadly what you hear from recruiters is they say, and I was sat down with someone last week who was who was telling me the challenge they've got right now is people are just leaving for more money. Okay. Now, if it was a pursuit of meaning, then what I suspect you'd find is that there would be an influx into the jobs that we typically regard as being imbued with a great deal of purpose, you know, teaching, nursing, sort of jobs of substance. And I don't think based on what we've seen from those sectors that we're seeing that. I don't think the teaching profession is is, um, inundated with those things. So look, you know, I'm intrigued with your perspective. I'm, you know, I've, I've scribbled down on this post-it <laughs> note in front of me that I'm going to go away and and see if there's any anything to back that up. Yeah, but right now I'm not convinced. Maybe
0: it's less about me, and you know, and I, I've heard this on on Adam Grant's podcast. This idea that you don't have to be going out to save the whales. You don't have to have that sort of that big, massive impact the world but something that holds a little bit more meaning for you maybe the company that you work in has maybe poor ethics or or that you've seen stuff happening or something like that but in addition to this idea of belonging and feeling like from my own perspective and from the research I did the sense of uh, values have become really really important to so it's not something that we've necessarily covered on on this podcast but but I think this idea of values aligning with the overall values of the, the organisation, which means the collective values of, of everyone else who works there as well. I think that for me is, is really important. And if you find that during the pandemic, that, that, didn't, that there was some sort of a clash there or that you realise that this wasn't the right thing for you, that you made a decision. I'm also hugely interested in this idea of people leaving for more money. I've also heard stories of of people leaving. Now, from my perspective, that is because of the challenge. There's talent shortages out there and people are offering more money for people to leave. And I don't think that that's sustainable in the long term. My own understanding of that is that people are uh, offering more money. People have decided, okay, I'm going to take more money in order to leave but without much thought around, well, what's the culture going to be like when I join this new organisation or, you know, what are they doing that's different to, to what I'm doing, that kind of thing. Any thoughts on, on that?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think this is a critical thing. If you look on Glassdoor, international data on Glassdoor suggests that the typically the number one thing that people said that was the most important thing about a job was the workplace culture. It was higher than the the terms and conditions. It was t- higher than the salary. Now, I wonder if the the fact that people are finding that they're working from the same desk three days a week and that's their home, and, you know, two days a week, they're venturing into the office. They think, well, as bad as the culture might be there, I can handle it. Um, and they're saying to themselves that culture might be less important. We've not seen it yet on the glass door work, uh, but, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, mo- most definitely look a lot of us because of the failings of the way that society's set up a lot of us use work as a proxy for a social life in our 20s and you know we use it as a way to feel connected amused entertained um you know occupied so how those things will change i don't know you know at the the very least i worked I did some really enlightening work uh, as part of the the research for the book i i went and i went along to a public hospital a nhs hospital in the uk and um i watched some of the hospital team because they were learning how to deal with difficult patients and the reason why this has become more imposing the the isolation of the pandemic strangely as people were seeing fewer strangers in their life as they were encountering few people that they didn't know um that insularity strangely was was being manifested as aggression So people were turning up in hospitals and being aggressive with the staff. And so I witnessed them learning how to deal with staff. And I was like, is this a phenomenon? And they were like, it's off the charts. We used to go months without anyone committing violence on a member of staff. Now it's happening weekly and it's like wow okay they're like we and we, we have no you know uh, there's not the police won't come out to half the things now cuz they're so underfunded and so um but you know they you know they, they were finding they they needed to find a way for staff to deal with this in fact their approach was they'd got cabin crew from airlines to come in the cabin crew were on um covid related furlough oh, of course, yeah, and yeah. they were like well how do you deal with a a a passenger who's kicking off, and you can't land somewhere, and you don't want to. You know, the cost of diverting the plane will lead to all manner of paperwork. How do you deal with a, a passenger that's kicking off like that? And it was just so intriguing to watch this sort of cross pollination. Yeah. them both dealing with these things, and and uh, and they said, you know, pass- patients in the hospital were way more violent than ever. Just a reflection of isolation. While I think uh, societally, it's a good thing that we might be finding less of our identity from our jobs, that we might be sort of leaning into our passions, our hobbies, the things that we uh, scratched our head to think of what to put at the bottom of our CV might actually become a genuine interest. But, um, but you know, I think these, we, we need to ensure that if work does play a smaller part in our lives, that we do replace it with something else.
0: Yeah, and that you know what those other things are, what, what lights you up, what brings you joy on mm. a day-to-day basis. Yeah, love that, love that approach. There was one thing that I wanted to ask from, um, from something that you mentioned earlier, and this is the idea of having a fondness for each other and the idea that we're all in this together. But I'd love to get your thoughts because I've worked in organisations where that has been absolutely the case, and I've worked in organisations where it's not. You know, if someone goes off sick, you kind of roll your eyes and say, well, <laughs> if that hurt, you know, now we've extra workload for us today. And that's really frustrating. Um, or if someone goes off sick longer term, the frustration that you feel rather than the empathy that you feel towards someone else and say, oh, my God, I hope that person is OK. So I've worked in both of those types of environments. And I'd love to get your thoughts on where does that come from? Is that Does that come from leadership? Do they need to set that as an example? Do they need, do they need to? kind of do it as a kind of as a rule as like what what are your thoughts in creating that type of environment because you know I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say here like as an individual I felt like I was in that environment and I learned from the behavior of other people in that environment as opposed to me setting that environment myself.
1: I was chatting to someone recently and they were saying um they were saying that they had an issue that right now any time that they were giving direct feedback to their team um, sort of about what the team was doing wrong, the team was going to HR and complaining about them. So that that was the scenario they said. And, you know, I've thought about it a lot. I've scratched my head about it a lot. And I think in that instance, there's no substitute for getting people probably in a room and having a long session talking about team dynamics talking about the realities of how feedback works talking you know experimenting giving feedback to everyone in the in the room thinking about giving feedback maybe sort of you know kicking off by giving collective feedback to a piece of work of someone who wasn't in the room and practicing to creating the communication lines that exist and and I think any leader right now probably needs to think about if, if I wanted to create a sort of strong, supportive team dynamic, a sense of team cohesion, you know, I need to think about it. There's a, there's a book by a woman called Priya Parker, I think, called The Art of Gathering. And she talks about how, you know, effectively, I, I guess we can all arrange a meeting and, um, and you know, we, we can go to our calendar app and, and create a meeting and invite people. And that's a meeting. Um, or we can create something that feels—it's got an objective to it. It's got—it's got an outcome to it. It's like it's going to be a gathering of people with an intention. And it's a bit like you know the, the difference between creating a PowerPoint slide and creating a TED talk. You know, a TED talk tries to take people on an emotional journey. It has a story arc to it. It's got an impact to it. Anyone can create a PowerPoint slide by opening it and and pressing new slide. And, you know, anyone could create a meeting by pressing new meeting. But if you want to create something that is going to leave people feeling a sense of connection, then you need to think about it more carefully. And it, look, it's, it's another example of how good middle managers are going to really earn their money. Specifically, I'll give you one example. I was chatting to, did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with um, an organization called The Moth. And you, you might have heard The Moth. They, they sort of run these storytelling nights, run them in Dublin, run them, uh, they run them all around the world, uh, true stories told live is the philosophy, and you know people stand up and they tell us a, a story told in the first person about their lives, about their about, about something about their experience. And these stories, variously, can be hilarious. They can be traumatic. They can be uh, astonishing. You know, and they've got a few rules about what a good story should have: stakes. It needs to have change. Really interesting. It's, fast, it's a brilliant book. I did a, a fabulous podcast on it. Um, anyway, they, they told me they run sessions for teams. I was like, okay, right. But if these I, – I, I was just intrigued because, was like, if you say a good story needs to be in the first person, it needs to have stakes. Uh, how is that relevant for companies? And is this about just making people better at delivering PowerPoint presentation, is it better? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. The benefit to companies is that when people tell their stories to each other and learn how to tell a story to each other, and they learn how to craft a story so it's got a, a, a sort of a story arc to it, um, when they do that to each other, what we generally find is it transforms the relationship of people. It's like, oh, wow, why? And because the moment that no longer is this just Aoife who sits next to me or used to sit next to me and now it's just a face on a, a Zoom screen, this is... This is Eva. I know the journey she's on. I know what she did, and it's moved me, and it's transformational. You know, like, and I think in the old days, so many of these things were an accident. We used to sit people next to each other. They would pretty much work out who the two or three people in the office they liked were. They might go and have, you know, sandwich in the park with them, or them. They might, you know, go for a walk with them at lunchtime it was largely accidental. And right now we're in a zone where, um, where I think the things that were accidental, we probably need to be better at crafting. And I think, you know, this is why, the thing that's going to be so fascinating is that in a year, two years, three times, three years, there's going to be some organizations that have learned how to do this well, probably from test and learn from sort of experimentation. They're going to be sort of saying, wow, we've learned so much, we've developed and improved. And there's going to be some organizations saying, yeah, people these days, they don't want to stay in a job. We're seeing such turnover. You know, there's a problem in the job market. And look, you can you can almost hear those, those two different uh, perspectives starting to take place already. You know, it's a bit like the old sort of, comedian line which is you, you know you're so much better than last week's audience the truth is there's no bad audiences there's no bad employees there's just bad environments that we create you know
0: mm. yeah 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 this is it um and so bruce the question i ask everyone who comes on the podcast what does being happier at work mean to you
1: the best parameter for me of whether i was personally enjoy my job whether the culture was in a good place whether i could hear after and you know, it became an obsession, an obsession for me. And it's like, okay, well, not in a sort of simplistic way. You know, I think as a barometer, knowing that people are laughing, it means they trust each other. It means they like each other. It means they feel they're safe. Mm. Um, generally, so we we laugh. We only laugh with people we like. And you know, it was a really important barometer. If people were laughing, it wasn't a sign of indolence. It was a sign of uh, connection and affinity. And, you know, I think Mm. most of us would say we've probably laughed less in the post-COVID era than we did before. And, you know, that absence of having a best friend at work is an illustration that most of us wouldn't necessarily say that we laughed as much. So I think this is it, you know, knowing that finding a route to having more laughter at work is actually a noble Mm. thing and a good thing. And a a way for us to enjoy the time, the 40 plus, 50 plus years that we're going to spend working.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. And I very deliberately thought out during the pandemic when I was living alone, when I was feeling a bit isolated, when we couldn't leave the house or could go too far from the house. uh, I very deliberately watched things to make me laugh in the evening. So uh, things like Modern Family, I had, uh, what else did I have? Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, things that made me laugh out loud. And I uh, absolutely needed that every day.
1: Absolutely. But it's probably
0: something I've not done (laughs) enough of in the in the interim so love that. So for anyone who would like to connect with you what is the best way to do that and and also um how how will they get a hold of your book?
1: Yeah, so um you can look the 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 best way to find out more about the book is if you go to my website eat sleep work and you can sign up to my newsletter or hear the podcast there. Uh, and you know the the books um you'll see some of the comments that people have written or maybe you have the opportunity to see some of the discussion and debate about it so you know um and and i really welcome people getting in touch i I, i've done quite a few events in dublin i'm often there and uh yeah you know i love people getting in touch via linkedin or via the website
0: brilliant and that's how we connected originally i think was on linkedin and then uh, by chance, you were speaking at an event that I attended in in Dublin, so I had the opportunity to meet in person, which was which was brilliant. So, uh, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your insights. I always love to to hear what you have to say and get your insights and your thoughts on all things work culture and you know the, this idea of the team dynamics and and what what the pandemic has done to kind of to change things and what we can do about it. Um, absolutely, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much, Bruce.
1: Thank you. I'm really grateful for the chat.
0: That was Bruce Daisley from Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I wanted to do a quick recap on some of the main points that we talked about and also remind you to get involved in the conversation. If you have anything to add, if you have any additional questions, I would love to hear from you. Reach out to me directly on the website, happieratwork.ie, also on Instagram, happieratwork.ie, and feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Aoife O'Brien, that's A-O-I-F-E-O apostrophe B-R-I-E-N. I I would absolutely love to connect with you on there and do get involved in the conversation. Now, some of the things that we started talking about, myself and Bruce, the first idea was this idea of team dynamics and resilience. And we, we talked about this idea of individualism versus collectivism. So relying on a group and how the importance of the group uh, for the nature of resilience as well. So rather than kind of focusing on yourself and looking out for yourself. And in Ireland, we call this me And, um, you know, just kind of looking out for yourself and your own interests, more putting the focus more on on the group and, and the collective and, and the community. That's not to say that we shouldn't take personal responsibility for our contributions, but it's not about focusing just on the self. We also get our social identity from groups. And I loved this concept. So it's about finding a place that you belong. And I suppose that's one of the reasons that I set up my business, Happier at Work. And one of the core pillars within the Happier at Work podcast is this idea of engagement and belonging at work. We talked about the concept of having a best friend at work, and I know certainly from my experience of of conducting the Q12 survey for Gallup or or, um, focusing on the results and sharing it within the team as well when I worked in corporate. This idea of having a best friend at work, I think from a European perspective, it it tends to score lower because we don't associate our best friends as being at work. We associate our best friends of being outside at work. But having someone at work that you can confide in and have a little bit of a moan to as well is really, really important. We talked about the idea that work used to form this huge part of our identity. After all, we do spend so much of our time at work. And if anything, COVID has given us the opportunity to reduce the importance of work on what it, who we are as people or as, you know, this often happens when people retire, that they lose that sense of purpose, they lose that sense of identity. But I think COVID has given us an opportunity to reimagine a purpose for our whole lives rather than just focusing on work exclusively. We talked also about this idea of psychological safety and the differing cultures in the US. I know there's a lot of people in the US who listen to the podcast as well. So US and Ireland tend to be the the highest number of listeners, especially because... As Bruce put it, this idea of Silicon Valley and the organisations that came out of Silicon Valley are having such an impact and an influence on, you know, these big global organisations and hiring so many different people. How in the US, it tends to be more about the rules of engagement. So culture is defined as how we do things or what the rules of engagement are. Whereas in Europe, the focus tends to be more on building connection and affiliation because we can find a sense of belonging where we work when we work in a culture that reflects in my own opinion and in in you know the work that I do with clients. It's about this idea of values and finding that connection through values. I loved this idea that that Bruce shared as well about having a fondness for each other. And for me, it's kind of it shows a level of respect so You know, when you can have uh, that sense of fondness, when you can connect in that way. And I have worked in organisations where we haven't necessarily had that sense of fondness. And to this day, I'm not really sure what the driver of that was. We're all humans after all, but people didn't weren't necessarily fond of each other. Maybe there was more of a competitive type of culture where if one person got one thing, it meant that another person didn't have the resources to do, to do their job, something like that. Another really great insight from the show was this idea of having an identity and people can gather around this sense of identity, the identity of having a great team dynamic, of taking pride in the work and this concept that we're all in it together. So we're all on the same team. We're all in this together, working towards a common goal. One of the questions posed was how can you create a good, cohesive environment when you're not all together anymore? So with this new hybrid remote working environment where people are not necessarily in the office, or they're not in the office at the same time, how can we create that? And again, would love for you to get involved in the conversation around that. Uh, we talked about the fact that some people are leaving for more money. And I have seen this myself, where people are leaving jobs and they're, they're going for something else. And I suppose from the organization's perspective, I don't think that's sustainable. So if companies are competing for staff by increasing the pay or the benefits that they get, It's not necessarily a good long term strategy to be able to do that, because maybe it's not sustainable Uh, from the employees perspective, focusing solely on money. I can understand there's certain circumstances where people do need to earn more money, but that doesn't necessarily lead to a greater sense of happiness at work. So a couple of different perspectives on that. Towards the end of the podcast, then uh, Bruce shared this idea of storytelling to transform relationships and Again, this is a topic that has been covered in a bit more detail on previous podcast episodes, and it seems to be coming up more and more in my life. The importance of being able to tell a good story and be able to connect emotionally with people by tapping into, you know, what are true and real stories that have happened, and how can you use those in business to create a better culture? How can you use those in in your life, in, in, in business, to be able to connect and communicate more effectively with other people, because by telling these stories, by sharing stories, by creating emotion in other people, it helps to move them. And they, when they feel moved, it goes back to this idea of feeling. And as Maya Angelou says, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. As a parting thought, then, I want to leave you with this idea of laughter as a barometer. I loved that, that Bruce shared that. And it's about connection and affinity. If you can laugh with people at work, it's a really great barometer as to whether or not you have a great culture within the team. And I know certainly I've worked in organisations where we've been able to have a great laugh together. And um, so consider that as a way to just as a kind of a sense check as to whether or not you have that that great culture. Um, you know, are people able to have a laugh together? Are they, do they feel like they're in it together? So, you know, they can even mock and tease each other and it's all taken very lightheartedly. So consider that as a way to, you know, just to kind of sense check whether or not you ha- you've built a really, really great culture. That's all for this week. And I look forward to sharing more insights with you next week on another solo episode. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I am so glad you tuned in today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love to get your thoughts. Head on over to social media to get involved in the conversation. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love if you could rate, review it or share it with a friend. If you want to know more about what I do or how I could help your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.